Are we recording, by the way? Yeah, we can go right now. I mean, we. Yep. I mean, do you want to discuss this on the air? Or do you want to? Yeah, let's go. All right, tell me when you're ready. We're up right now. That's a roll. I tried to do a rolling start, so we can go. Just continue you our want conversation. Want to introduce me, or you have an introduction to say? I mean, uh, no. Would you like to tell people who you are? Normally, we just hit the ground running. Sure. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, my name is Joel Gilbert. I'm a, a documentary filmmaker based here in Los Angeles, California. Um, made about uh, 18 documentary feature films over the years, starting with films on Bob Dylan, uh, his history, uh, Elvis Presley, Paul McCartney. I've made uh, films about the Middle East, Farewell Israel, and Atomic Jihad about the Iranian nuclear program. And I'm pretty well known for this one from 2012 called Dreams from My Real Father. This is where I did an investigation in Hawaii uh, into Barack Obama's background. Uh, and I came up with a conclusion and prevent, presented a mountain of evidence that his real <coughs> biological father was not the Kenyan student, Barack Obama, that he based his candidacy on, saying that his father was from Kenya, his mother was from Kansas, he's going to bring us all together. Uh, I found out his real biological father, the man who actually he admits that raised him, uh, was named Frank Marshall Davis, an American communist out of Chicago who was a Soviet agent during the Cold War and I believe radicalized Obama in his formative years. So I presented that whole story in 2012, and I've gone on to make a number of films, uh, Trump, The Art of the Insult, uh, made a, a film called The Trayvon Hoax about the George Zimmerman uh, trial and the Trayvon Martin case, uh, exposing the entire trial as a hoax based on a fake witness. And my most recent film is uh, Michelle Obama 2024, her real story uh, and her real life story and plan for power. It's also a book, as is the Trayvon hoax. It's a book and a film. So I've got quite a number of films and books uh, on politics and music, and I'm happy to discuss any of them today. Well, like we were talking about, I first came across you from your work on Trayvon Martin, and I was actually watching the Michelle Obama, your film on that last night. Okay. Do you still, so you're, your kind of culminating prediction there was that she was going to run pretty much in November of last year to take on this 2024 election. Do you still anticipate her coming into the race? Yeah, well, what I noticed, having studied the Obamas for years, I noticed that as soon as uh, Trump got elected, that Michelle started following the exact same formula that Barack had done. She was copying everything he did before he ran for the, the White House. And I thought that was very interesting. Uh, Barack was the keynote speaker for John Kerry. At the Democrat convention in 2004, Barack Obama introduced John Kerry. Sure enough, there was Michelle in 2020 introducing Joe Biden as the keynote speaker. It's a, a position they give to the person they think will be the nominee at the next convention, typically. Uh, Barack had a voter registration organization in Chicago called Project Vote. Sure enough, Michelle founded a voter registration organization called When We All Vote, and she got $26 million from the George Soros group for this. And of course, uh, Michelle wrote two autobiographies, just as Barack wrote two autobiographies, uh, Dreams for My Father and The Audacity of Hope. Michelle wrote Becoming and The Light We Carry, both autobiographies, both best-selling books, also on Netflix as movies. So I was just watching her copying everything Barack did. Uh, I know that Michelle is very political. She kind of has a cover story that she doesn't like politics. Now, all politicians don't like politics. They like the power and the celebrity that comes from it. 
but Michelle is a very political person. I found out from going to Chicago. I talked to three of her boyfriends, her elementary, high school classmates, principals, teachers, even her mother, her uh, thesis advisor from Princeton, you name it. And Michelle had a very political upbringing. Her father was a precinct captain in Chicago. He was uh, working for the Democrat Party machine. Michelle was going around with her father doing politics from four years old. Uh, Michelle also grew up in, in uh, Jesse Jackson's house. People don't know that. <coughs> Excuse me. Michelle was um, best friends with Jesse's daughter, Santita, when he was running for president. So she grew up around politics. She was so in love with politics that she married a politician. She married her father. So uh, I do expect that uh, it's in the works. They put the Democrat National Convention in Chicago, Michelle's hometown of all places. And uh, I think Biden will be moving on at some point for health or impeachment or other reasons. And Michelle will be substituted in at some point, possibly all the way to the convention uh, to be the Democrat nominee. She's the most popular Democrat. She's the most beloved Democrat. And she has tremendous uh, pop culture appeal. And uh, I think it's going to happen. Well, it's hard to make the argument that Biden's on solid footing right now, especially after what the special counsel came out and said regarding his memory. It does feel like they're kind of working towards pushing him out. And it doesn't seem like they want Kamala to necessarily step into those shoes. Well, nobody wants Biden. No Democrat wants Biden. No age group wants him. No ethnicity uh, men, women, minorities, uh, they don't want him. The Democrat uh, down-ballot candidates running for state Senate, governor, Senate, Congress, they're terrified he'll drag down the ticket. They don't want him. Nobody wants Joe Biden. It's just a question of how and when they have him step aside. You can see that all the people talking up removing Joe Biden are from Team Obama, people like David Axelrod, Van Jones, the people that are saying, you know, uh, Biden's kind of had it. He served his purpose. We need to move on. Uh, so uh, I think it's certainly building up. It was building up for a long time, but it certainly burst out into the public with the uh, special counsel, Robert Hur observing what we've seen in public. Uh, Biden does not remember when he was vice president, doesn't remember when his son died. Uh, he can't remember things about policy like Afghanistan. And I think the way that Joe Biden cemented the beginning of the end is that press conference he had responding to the special counsel's report. He said, I have a great memory. Uh, the president of Mexico, I called him and asked him to open the border to Gaza. And how dare they say, I don't know when my son died. I've got this rosary from the lady of uh, 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 anyway. So it was just disastrous. He reinforced uh, the special counsel's findings that he's just uh, too old and uh, too senile to be charged with a crime. So the question is, how could he possibly run for re-election, let alone remain president? Yeah, whoever okayed his little press conference after the finding came out, they need to fire that person because that was a mistake. Well, it was, it was a strategic idea to, to deal with something that they thought they could put the kibosh on by him reading a prepared statement he barely got through the prepared statement. It was the Q&A that uh, threw him off. And it's been that way for years. Biden is not able to answer questions. He loses his train of thought. He can't remember things. It really was nothing new, but it was under the guise of, I'm here to reinforce why I have a great memory. And he proved the very opposite. Do you think it was strategic in that sense where they thought he could kind of quell 
the fears that were coming out from that report? Or do you fall into the latter camp where this was them throwing him under the bus and they knew he was going to flounder and this is the beginning of whoever's going to fill the shoes? I think the intention was for him to read the prepared statement, which wasn't bad. It was written okay. Uh, But they probably shouldn't have had him answer questions, but he kind of had to. And he lost his cool. He yelled at the reporters. I thought uh, CNN's MJ Lee, of all people, destroyed Joe Biden when she said, you know, Mr. President, you told me that Americans would watch you and they have watched you and they see that you're you you can't remember things. And you told me other Democrats could be Trump. So why does it have to be you, Mr. President? And he freaked out. So uh, I think it was unfortunate. I don't think it was intended, but that was Joe Biden being Joe Biden is somebody who gets angry very easily. He can't remember things. And uh, he's just kind of ornery and stubborn. And that's what America saw uh, all at once. And I think people were uh, very disturbed by him. Do you think there's a potential for a pivot to Newsom? That's a name that gets thrown around a lot. And he had that meeting with Xi Jinping. It seems like he is trying to make himself look more presidential. Do you think that that would well, be an remember, alternative? Uh, yeah, Gavin Newsom is the governor of California. He's done a very poor job in California. Uh, he's a very snarky person who will say anything and smile while he says it. And pretend to believe what he's saying. He's kind of like a young Joe Biden, kind of sleazy, snarky, used car salesman type of person. I don't think it sells on the national stage very well, certainly not to independents. Uh, I think he has positioned himself, though, to be a likely uh, vice presidential pick for Michelle Obama because uh, similar to Donald Trump, that didn't have government executive experience. Um, and he chose Mike Pence, who was a former governor, Michelle would do well to have a vice presidential pick who is a, a, a governor of a state. Uh, but Gavin Newsom doesn't fit the modern Democrat Party. They, they're jettisoning white males. They don't want white males in the Democrat Party. You can see how they got rid of Andrew Cuomo. The uh, Democrats are reacting to the fact that they need about 90% of the black vote to get their candidates elected. And the biggest threat to that was Donald Trump because he delivered for the black community what the Democrats have been promising for 60 years and never delivered. He brought prison reform, a robust economy, school choice, you name it, such that minorities were moving over to vote for Trump. So that's why the Democrats, uh, in a rather insulting way, they've appointed uh, blacks to about every high-profile position they could think of, UN ambassador, uh, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, defense secretary, Supreme Court. Uh, House Minority Leader, you name it, they've appointed uh, blacks to these positions. Their message to black voters is rather insulting. It's, we have people that look like you, so you should vote for us. That's how uh, silly their approach to the black community is. But Michelle Obama, I'm sure they think will shore up their uh, their need to get the minority votes in. And Michelle, as I chronicle in my film and book, Michelle Obama 2024, she's pretty much expert at uh, outreach to the black community, mostly using race hoaxes and uh, a, a lie about her upbringing, her lying about her childhood, lying about having suffered discrimination in her life to try to trick minority voters into thinking, hey, I'm just one of you. And instead, I chronicle that Michelle was the white face of 
of, uh, I'm sorry, the black face of white flight growing up. She refused to study with other black kids. She went to white schools. And I chronicle how she got her revenge on the black community as an adult in her career. She exploited them and kicked them out of their homes and denied them access to health care and made a lot of money doing it. Michelle is a sellout. She sold out the black community, but she wants them to think she's one of them. So she makes up these phony lies about racism and race hoaxes uh, to try to fool them to emotionally inflame the black community to to get power. That is a recurring theme throughout your film on Michelle Obama is the idea that the only person that participated in white flight when she was living in Chicago was her. Do you get a lot of pushback for that claim? Not really. I mean, it's not a claim. It's true. I mean, Michelle and her brother, uh, they lived in South Shore. Now, Michelle lies repeatedly, even in her book and her film Becoming on Netflix for years. She plays the role of South Side Girl. In the movie, she says, I'm from the south side of Chicago. There's nothing else you need to know about me. Well, it turns out she's not from the south side of Chicago. She's from South Shore, which was an upper middle class community on Lake Michigan. Jesse Jackson, big, beautiful house in South Shore. He never said he was from the south side. Uh, So Michelle, instead of going to South Shore High School, which was one block from their house, imagine walking one block to high school. Be great. It's a beautiful school. But it was all black. Uh, Michelle's parents sent her brother, Craig, to an all-white Catholic school, very expensive, private Catholic school, an hour away. Michelle went to a magnet school. Uh, the black girls called Michelle an Oreo. It was a racial insult, meaning you're black on the outside, but you're really white on the inside. Michelle didn't have black friends. And she talks about it openly. It's, I got her on film. She said she's afraid to go out of her house because the black kids would beat her up. Uh, she got in a fist fight with a girl who called her an Oreo. They accused her of acting white and talking white. Michelle said she grew up watching Mary Tyler Moore was her hero, the Brady Bunch. When Barack met Michelle, he said she reminded him of his white grandmother from Kansas, and the family was like, leave it to Beaver. So they were never really part of the black community. Michelle was afraid of black people growing up, and she refused to study with other black people She and had no black friends. So I think that's why in her career in Chicago, when white liberals had problems with black people and couldn't hire a white person to exploit them, they needed a black person for that. Michelle took those jobs. Uh, Working for the mayor of Chicago, Michelle was the assistant planning commissioner, and they wanted the land where there were projects called Cabrini Green. And they wanted to give the land to these uh, Democrat donor developers like Tony Resco. So they got this idea to knock down the projects, made 20,000 black people homeless, And Michelle had that job, and she told them, it's going to be good for you. And having proven she could do the dirty work, the University of Chicago Medical Center, the white liberals there, were losing money because black Southsiders were using their emergency room. A lot of them didn't have good insurance. So Michelle headed up something called the Southside Health Collaborative. And her job was, if you were black and showed up at the emergency room, Michelle would put you in a white van and dump you back on the South Side in these crappy clinics in strip malls. I visited those strip malls. They were just horrible. And Michelle said, it's going to be good for you. It's better for you not to get not to have access to good health care. So I chronicle this very carefully in my film and book, Michelle Obama 2024. By the way, you can uh, get the DVD or the book version on Amazon. And the you want to live stream the movie, it's on Amazon Prime Video as well as SalemNow.com. What was the desire to create this book and the film? 
What was your... Well, I just saw an obvious, uh, what was going on was obvious to me and nobody saw it or understood it. I saw Michelle preparing to run for president, just like Barack had, copying what he had done. And uh, the public still to this day, you can flip on the TV right now, CNN or Fox News, and they're all going to say, Biden won't be the nominee. They say, who's going to be? They say, well, probably not Michelle because she doesn't like politics. Maybe Gavin Newsom. So I'll tell you how that came about. Michelle was so political back in 2008 when uh, Barack was running for president. And before that, she was his campaign treasurer on his Senate state Senate campaign. She was the treasurer of the campaign. She went to all his campaign events running for Senate. 2008, she's running around the country as the number one Obama campaign surrogate. She's speaking to stadiums. She's filling up stadiums and she's giving these very nasty anti-American speeches saying things like, you can't pay your mortgage, you can't buy food in this country, you can't afford childcare, don't get sick in this country, not here. And she went over the top one night when Barack won a primary. She said, for the first time in my life, I'm proud of my country. Now, she said a lot worse things than that, but the media picked up on that, the Republicans picked up on that and started paying attention. And they were like, ooh. And that's when the campaign, the Obama campaign went to Michelle and said, look, people are going to hate you we can lose because of you, because you're so anti-American. Uh, so the next day she got a speechwriter and she went on The View and said, oh, I hate politics. I just want to be the mom in chief. And so she kind of took a step back and she's the media has helped her promote that idea that she just doesn't like politics. When in fact, she's more political than Barack. She's a better speaker than Barack. She's a better politician than Barack. Uh, Charles Ogletree was a Harvard professor who taught both Michelle and Barack in different years in law school. And he said between Barack and Michelle, he would have guessed it would be Michelle to run for president, not Barack. That's how political she was. So I saw how incredibly political Michelle is and how she was preparing to run for president and nobody really understood it. To this day, people are starting to understand it, but there's a large group of people that get caught up in that, oh, I heard Michelle doesn't like politics. You know, so uh, it's completely untrue. She's a very much a political animal. She's all politics all the time. Just look at her Twitter account. It's all politics. Yeah, she's politically astute. And it's it's funny because people always say, oh, I wish she would run because she's such a great politician. But I know that she won't because she doesn't like politics. Right. That's the silliness. One of the connections that was drawn in the film that was surprising to me as an outsider is that the connection to these kind of more radical ideals, her connection to Bill Ayers, Bernadine Dorn. I, the weathermen have come up a couple of times on this podcast. I've not dug into them enough to really have a solid foundation on that, but it was surprising. You make the comparison of kind of these radical speeches that Bernadine Dorn is giving on fear. And, you know, we have to combat this fear that is inherent in our society, in our country and kind of build a better world in some sense. And then you draw that comparison to Michelle giving these speeches, almost parroting that same line of thinking. That's right. You know, a lot of people don't know about the Weather Underground was a domestic Marxist communist terrorist group in the 60s. They bombed the Pentagon. They murdered policemen. Uh, like most Marxist groups going back to the 1930s in America, they always had a front, uh, a fake cause to draw people in. They, the Marxists and communists in America, going back to Chicago, they knew that Americans would never buy into communist ideology. 
They would never believe in this nonsense that you give all your property to the government. Everybody dresses the same. You talk the same. You think alike. And you, uh, everyone is like a, a, an animal in a zoo. And you all do the same things. And the government controls everything. They know that Americans would never buy into that. So they always had a front uh, cause. In the 30s and early 40s, it was anti-war. We just don't want to go to World War II. We don't want to be involved in the war in Europe. We're anti-war. If you look behind it, they're really anti-U.S. government. They want to replace the Constitution with the Communist Manifesto. In the 60s, they were anti-Vietnam and anti-draft. But in reality, they wanted to overthrow the government and replace it with communism. So uh, Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers were a married couple that were heads of the Weather Underground terrorist group. They, they bombed buildings, bombed the Capitol, killed policemen. And uh, Michelle gets a job at Sidley Austin Law Firm out of Harvard Law School, and she's working with Bernadine Dorn for two years. Bernadine Dorn couldn't get a law license because of her convictions, but she worked there as some kind of clerk, and her and Michelle are fast friends. And of course, Barack, we found out, was friends with her husband, Bill Ayers. And Michelle and Barack went to their homes of, of Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers for years, every week for dinners in the 90s up until he ran for Senate. And you just cannot overstate the amount of influence that these 60s terrorists had on the Obamas. How in the world does Michelle Obama, who went to an exclusive high school, a magnet school in Chicago, goes to Princeton and Harvard, and then she shows up in 2008 talking like an anti-American 60s radical because of Bernadine Dorn. She's copying her. I think she was radicalized by her. Uh, Bernadine Dorn always talked about the politics of fear. It's this theory that we're all afraid of each other and all of our policies come out of this fear. Well, you look at Michelle in 2008, she still talks about fear to this day in her book and Be Becoming. She talks about fear, how Americans are all afraid. It's all this radicalization she got uh, from these 60s radicals. And uh, you see it taking shape in Obama's uh, policies as well as Joe Biden, what they're doing to the country. It's uh, to undermine this country. And it is, it's very scary, but this is where it comes from. Is that your intention in this work is to present that side to the public to try to make them realize that, you know, like most politicians, what you're, what you're seeing isn't actually what you're getting in some sense? Well, uh, all politicians fudge their background a little bit to kind of get sympathy from certain groups. They all exaggerate here and there. Barack Obama completely fabricated his background, completely false. The whole thing was my father's from Kenya. I, I believe Barack's father was Frank Marshall Davis, a Soviet agent and communist card-carrying communist member out of Chicago who went to Hawaii on orders of the Kremlin to try to start a dock worker strike in the 40s. Uh, and he did start a dock worker strike. The idea was to kick U.S. naval forces out of Hawaii. This was before statehood so that they could make way for Soviet expansion in Southeast Asia. Uh, the dock workers' strike failed, and uh, Frank Marshall Davis became a writer for a communist newspaper, the Honolulu Record. And I think I present a mountain of evidence that not only did he raise Obama by his own admission, but that he was Obama's biological father. He looks just like Frank Marshall Davis and nothing like the Kenyan student. I think the Kenyan student was a, kind of a cover story uh, for an affair that he had with uh, Obama's mother. The Kenyan student was married in uh, Kenya with two kids. So, uh, so Michelle surprisingly presents a phony background story, just as false and made up as Barack. Michelle's story is I'm from the South side of Chicago. Not true. 
I was held back in life because of my skin color and racism, and I experienced racism. One of her phony stories she tells is uh, that I debunked is her, she talks about how her high school guidance counselor, who she never mentions what color she is, uh, racially profiled her about applying to Princeton University. She told even Gail King last year, again, she's telling this for 15 years, but she told Gail King, uh, my guidance counselor said, you're black applying to Princeton, maybe you're stretching. Well, I found out her high school guidance counselor was a church-going black woman named Nan King, also an assistant principal. There's no way she racially profiled her. The worst thing she could have said is, Michelle, you know, your test scores are way too low for Princeton. Maybe you should apply to some backups, you know, in case you don't get accepted. That's the worst thing she could have possibly said. But Michelle, uh, you know, she presents this story of somebody that overcame all these racial and gender obstacles. In fact, she had a very privileged childhood. Michelle went to Paris when she was in 11th grade with her French class. I didn't go to Paris. Michelle was in a dance troupe for 10 years, uh, jazz and tap performing all over Chicago. Her father was a politician. She's best friend to Jesse Jackson's daughter, exclusive high school. So she had a very exclusive upbringing, but to trick minority voters into saying, hey, I'm one of these ordinary black people like you, give me the power, give me your votes. She makes up these phony stories I've got it on tape on the movie. You can see when she goes to speak to black audiences in 2008, she puts on a phony urban accent. All of a sudden, she doesn't use the letter G. She says coming and going instead of coming and going. She puts on fake, uh, uses fake speech. Another thing she did in 2008, um, Michelle had been on the uh, Vanity Fair top 25 international best dress list in 2005 because she'd been going for 20 years to the Miracle Mile in Chicago. She got all these beautiful clothes from these designers like Ikram Goldman and Maria Pinto. She had a celebrity hairdresser from age 18. But she shows up on the campaign trail for Barack, doesn't comb her hair, wears an old sweater and a skirt, looking like a homeless person, putting on a phony accent to try to trick minorities and thinking, well, I'm just one of these ordinary black housewives. You know, I'm just like you. She doesn't show up you know, in her beautiful clothes and says, hey, I'm another Harvard lawyer like my husband. No, she puts on a whole phony background story. So by investigating Michelle, speaking to all those people that know her, going to Chicago, speaking to even her mother, uh, I found out the real story. So that's why the film is called. It's also a book, Michelle Obama 2024, her real life story and her plan for power. Why has nobody investigated and come to the same conclusions that you have? Michelle Obama is a very beloved uh, figure. I mean, uh, she's had 15 years of all positive publicity. Uh, part of the reason that people that want to be in politics write their autobiographies, like Barack Obama did, wrote an autobiography in 1995, and he wrote another one in 2005, is because they want to create a political document of their life history so that when someone wants to write something about their history, they can just look in the book. They don't have to ask any questions, don't have to do any research. So, for instance, for my film, Dreams from My Real Father, I went to Hawaii twice. That was twice as much as all the mainstream media put together with millions of dollars of budget. And I talked to people. Media never went to Hawaii to ask about Barack Obama. They just took everything in his book and, and repeated it. Whatever Barack said, they'd repeat it. His father's from, Can uh, from Kenya. His mother's from Kansas. He wants to bring us together. They, uh, it's a little shocking that they never tried to investigate further. So the same thing for Michelle. 
She wrote two autobiographies. So if anybody wants to write about her childhood or life history, they just look in her autobiography, which happens to be uh, fictitious. So uh, it's kind of the mystery of a modern American media. Why won't they do their jobs? Why won't they ask questions? And it takes someone like me, unfortunately, to, to go and investigate. And of course, we find out the official story presented by Barack or Michelle are completely fictitious and are meant uh, to manipulate voters to gain power. With Michelle, I could see it being a little easier if she did to fudge her background where she went to school, what level of privilege she maybe had growing up. But with Obama, if his dad was a Russian agent, which this is my first time hearing that, wouldn't that be on somebody's radar? Wouldn't someone have access to that or be sounding some sort of alarm that, hey, this might be worth looking into? Well, I think certain government intelligence agencies, I'm sure they knew it. Maybe they used that to influence him at certain points. But Obama, in his book, Dreams for My Father, he talks extensively about Frank. He talks about Frank. The whole book is about Frank, much more so than the Kenyan student. And, uh, you know, I read Dreams from My Father. I said, who's this Frank guy? And I look it up, and it's Frank Marshall Davis. And I get Frank Marshall Davis wrote a book called Living the Blues. And all the photos of Frank Marshall Davis look just like Barack Obama. And Barack looks nothing like the Kenyans. The Kenyan student, Barack Obama, he's from the Luau tribe in Kenya. They have very slanted foreheads. The forehead is not straight. It's kind of slanted back. Very large teeth, big wide gap between the teeth. Teeth uh, patterns run in families. And Barack looks nothing like the Kenyan student, zero. He looks a carbon copy, looks just like Frank Marshall Davis. I found nude photos that uh, Frank Marshall Davis took of Barack's mother. They're in the movie. So, uh, look, the biology aside, we don't have the DNA, but Obama admits to being raised by this Soviet agent in, uh, in, 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 in Hawaii. So uh, the, the ties are very extensive. And I believe Obama is what we call a red diaper baby, the child of a Communist Party member. Well, that's the big kind of conspiracy around Justin Trudeau as well, right? Is that his real father is actually Fidel Castro. Yeah, I've, I've read about that. And I've, if, you, if you look into the details, it does sound very possible. It does sound credible based on uh, the fact that his father was impotent, the Trudeau, and uh, the family took vacations in Cuba uh, during those exact same times. So uh, it's a credible story. Uh, Justin Trudeau does look a hell of a lot like Fidel Castro and nothing like uh, uh, his fa the father, official father, uh, Pierre Trudeau. So in terms of Obama, you think that maybe this was on somebody's radar, whether one of the intelligence agencies or somebody higher up in government, and maybe it was just a vector that they used to try to influence Obama rather than bring it out to the public and say, hey. Well, the difference, the difference of course, between Justin Trudeau was not raised by Fidel Castro, you know, uh, but Obama was raised by Frank Marshall Davis. Uh, and certainly uh, there would be people in the government uh, who would be aware of uh, the real story. Remember, there's a big controversy. Why would Barack refuse to leave, release his birth certificate when he was running for president? And when he became president, he released a uh, kind of a, it's it's not the real birth certificate. It's just like a, a record of the birth certificate and wouldn't release the real birth certificate. When he did finally release it, 
it it was it was in like 40 layers a pdf file you could open it in, in adobe illustrator and see how they built it so my information was that uh, that I got from sources in Hawaii is that the father on the birth certificate was left blank on the real birth certificate. Uh, the reason Obama couldn't release it is because his entire story of dreams from my father, his whole political story that he wrote about, he said, when my, my parents fell in love and when my father, when I was two years old, my father got accepted to Harvard. So he went there and that kind of broke up the family. Now, we know that's not true from the, the actual history because Barack's mother, Anne Dunham, was enrolled and attending university at the University of Washington in Seattle when he was two months old. And the Kenyan was still in Hawaii. So we know from the facts that Barack's story is untrue. But if he released a real birth certificate and, and people would say, well, why isn't the Kenyan student listed as the father? Uh, and that would blow up the whole story. And well, who is the father then? And that, that would lead to Frank Marshall Davis. Obama would have been unelectable at the time had he said, you know, my father was a Soviet agent uh, who radicalized me against the United States. That wouldn't work. Yeah, I'd heard the birth certificate story. I never actually looked into it, but it was big for a while. I think Trump was a proponent of that back in the day as well, wasn't he? Yeah, Trump mentioned it. A lot of people were saying, why won't he release his birth certificate? It's kind of strange. What's he hiding? And no one knew the answer. I think the answer is because the Kenyan student was a sham marriage to cover up this affair with Frank Marshall Davis. There were very few black people in Hawaii at the time, and they needed a black person to uh, you know, pretend to be the father. And they found this Kenyan student who was married with two kids in Kenya who wanted to go to Harvard and wanted to extend his visa. So I think that was the deal. Do you think that the Obamas are aware of your work? I think so. I've, I've gotten information. Look, I was attacked by BarackObama.com when I came out with Dreams from My Father. Uh, Maya, uh, Obama's uh, half-sister, had to come out finally and s during the campaign because people started demanding, well, why? who's this Frank Marshall Davis guy? Why did he raise Barack Obama? And they had Maya provide the answer to the media. And she said, oh, well, when he was nine years old and came back from Indonesia, his white grandparents thought Barack needed a black role model. So that's why they had him raised by Frank Marshall Davis, who at the time was a 67-year-old pornographer out of Chicago and communist. Doesn't make any sense why someone coming to a multiracial society uh, who's mixed race, biracial Barack would need to, a black role model to become more black. It's a, an absurd idea. But the media reported what she said and just moved on. That's how the media works. If they're forced to try to do a little investigation, they get one little piece of information, then they move on. When you say you were attacked by Obama.com, attacked just in terms of slander of them coming out against you? or Yeah, Barack Obama.com uh, attacked me personally because of this film, Dreams from My Real Father. They didn't deny the fact that Frank Marshall Davis was the father. They didn't address the substance. They just attacked me personally. So I'm sure they were very aware of it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a, a friend of one of Obama's good friends growing up in high school who told me that uh, Barack had actually seen the film. So I'm sure they're aware of it. But because the media won't cover it, uh, they're pretty much unafraid of the substance. Has anyone tried to open litigation against you or it's more suppression of that they they just don't recognize the story. 
No, I've never been sued for anything. Uh, I did have, uh, when Obama became president, I did have the IRS denied all my business expenses, which is absurd. And I had to have my accountant fight it for about a year. <laughs> but, uh, so we got over that. Um, so, uh, no, I think their strategy is to try to ignore it as much as possible because they know 99% of the mainstream media won't cover it. So it doesn't hassle them that much to simply ignore it unless they're forced to, you got to kind of force them to, to answer it. I think when Michelle declares for president and uh, Donald Trump should start tweeting every day, Michelle, are you going to apologize for what you did to the black community in Chicago? Michelle, are you going to apologize for denying access to health care to the black community? Michelle, are you going to apologize for kicking 20,000 black people out of their homes? Then they're going to have to answer for it. But as long as it's not, they're not forced to deal with it, they, they try to ignore you. People that are watching the media currently be so open and brazen about attacking Trump, they might be curious, why would the media try to cope for the Obamas? Why would the media what? Why would the media be trying to cope for the Obamas? Why would they be complicit in kind of covering up his backstory or not doing any due diligence in that story? Uh, well, it's been going on for a good, uh, you know, 20 years ago, the media was much more critical. Uh, even when Barack ran for president, you know, uh, they did ask him critical questions and were much more uh, difficult to deal with. After Barack became president, the, the media just kind of all got into line and uh, pretty much cover for what he wanted to accomplish. People that complained about him violating the Constitution, complained about Obamacare, you name it, they would be accused by the media, oh, they must be racist, must be because he's biracial. They don't like his policy because he's biracial. So yeah, the media became complicit uh, kind of when Obama got elected president, they fell into line. And so it's been going on for you know over 15 years that they just uh, pretty much follow, corporate media follows what the Democrat Party wants them to do. The branding of racist is so strong. And I think it's diminishing more so now because so many people have been branded that and vindicated in some ways. It's almost like the boy that cried wolf. But it's understandable that people would turn in the opposite direction when that is posed against them. Oh, if we start digging into these stories or we start questioning, even just posing valid questions, it might be considered racist. We can't go down that route. Well, with Michelle Obama, not only can they, the media hit people, if you don't agree with her, they'll hit you with a label of being racist, but also sexist. Now it's uh, gender, not only race and gender. So, um, well, look, uh, everyone is terrified of being accused of possibly being racist in some way. They're just terrified. Look at corporate America, Major League Baseball, uh, the state of Georgia tightened up their very loose voting rules. Uh, and uh, the leftist organization said, oh, they're racist. So the Major League Baseball moved their uh, all-star game a couple years ago to Denver, just like that, because they just didn't want to deal with it. They didn't want to hear it. They don't want to be accused of it. Look at, you watch the Super Bowl the other day. In the end zone, it says, end racism. <laughs> you know, these anti-racism messages, which are a big part of the leftist socialist front for what they're really trying to accomplish. The NFL, after the George Floyd riots, um, were terrified of being accused of being racist. So they adopted the anti-racist messaging. 
Uh, America got over racism, you know, 50 years ago. I was, I grew up in Tennessee in the seventies and eighties and we had black kids in our school. Everybody was friends. We're friends to this day. There was, I never heard the N word, but they want us to believe that 40, 50 years later, America is racist. So we need to have a campaign against racism, but corporations, NFL sports league, they're just terrified of being accused or possibly have to defend anything to do with racism. So they automatically cave in. It does seem like in the past few years, more so the past decade, you could say that racism has exploded as an idea. Do you attribute a lot of that to the Obamas? Yeah, it's all the Obamas. The Obamas ruined race relations in this country. Uh, Barack even ran on this idea that he'll bring everybody together again. Uh, When he was elected president, (coughs) the polls were 70% of both blacks and whites thought race relations were excellent. When they left office, it was the opposite. 30% thought they were good and 70% thought they were bad. And the way that Obama's ruined race relations was for power. Uh, The Obamas were both very insecure in their blackness. They were really never a member of the black community, Michelle nor Barack. Uh, Remember, Barack grew up in a white family in Hawaii. He never had any black friends, never knew black people. He, like Michelle, was afraid of black people, but he wanted the power. And the core group of Democrat voters would be the black uh, vote. So he did said things to inflame black voters, and it really all blew up. My film, I cover this in my film, The Trayvon Hoax. You might remember in 2012 when Barack was running for re-election, it really wasn't sure that the black community would come out and vote for him again. Everything got worse. Uh, illegals were coming, taking down jobs, bringing down wages, economy was terrible. And it really wasn't certain that blacks would support him again because he did nothing for the black community at all. That's when they had that case in Florida where George Zimmerman was getting, you know, getting his face pounded in and having his head slammed into the concrete, yelled for help. Eyewitness came out and, and, said, George said, get him off of me. I can't breathe. He he had broken his nose and his blood was going down in his throat. This guy named Jonathan Good. And he said, he yelled at Trayvon. He yelled, he said, I'll call the cops, let him go. And George said, no, I already called the cops. Get him off of me. And Jonathan Good goes back into his house to call the cops. And so George finally fired a single shot to get Trayvon off of him. The police investigated and exonerated Zimmerman. Self-defense, case closed. Al Sharpton goes down, Ben Crump, FBI, and they start all these rallies to get Zimmerman arrested. Barack says, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. And that's when I chronicled, they got a fake witness, Rachel Gentel, the hefty Haitian American girl who was two years older and 200 pounds heavier than Trayvon. They got her to falsely claim that she was on the phone with Trayvon before he got shot and that she heard things over the phone that might mean Zimmerman should get arrested, even though the eyewitness said completely the opposite. So they used this girl's testimony to arrest Zimmerman, even though it was a fake witness. The real girlfriend was named Diamond Eugene. I found her. She's in the movie. And she was on the phone with Trayvon, but refused to lie to the police. So they got this other girl to pretend that she was on the phone and that she was his girlfriend. And uh, that's how Black Lives Matter was founded. Barack embraced Black Lives Matter, brought him to the White House. And they use Black Lives Matter, the Obamas, to inflame the black community with emotion about racism. 
to be reelected. Michelle was in on it too. There's this great story she tells David Letterman about how she went out of the White House uh, incognito, wearing sunglasses and a hat, and went to Target. And she's laughing and telling on David Letterman show. It's on TV. It's in my movie. She says there was this really short woman, and because I was tall, she asked me to grab something off the top shelf. And I handed it to her, and she told me, you didn't have to make that look so easy. And we both laughed. And Michelle says, I had the best time. A year later, after the Zimmerman case, Michelle tells uh, Essence Magazine that it was a racial incident. The reason the woman asked her to get the thing off the top shelf is because she was black. So Michelle's in on all the race hoaxing. And uh, that's how they ruined race relations in this country. Yeah. The George Zimmerman case, that's how I came across you, was the Trayvon Martin hoax, your documentary on that. That's kind of what put you on my radar. Right. Um, and it's it's a pretty insane documentary that you put out. I mean, there's a, there's a lot in there, and it seems like the linchpin of the whole case and of your documentary on it was the Diamond Eugene story. And essentially that the prosecution used Diamond Eugene's, it's her half-sister is Rachel Jontel. Correct. They used her in Diamond Eugene's place. That's and correct. You, uh, and you hear that, I was in middle school, I think, when Trayvon Martin, when that case happened. I didn't really know a lot about it. I, I heard the branding of, oh, this innocent black kid was shot for wearing a hoodie by some white supremacist. That was the branding that I can remember from that time. Right. And then you watch your case and you're like, oh man, I don't know. Where does this go? Because you, you hear this case that basically the prosecution set up this girl to try to hammer Zimmerman. And you, your inclination is to believe, well, that couldn't happen in the court system today. You couldn't just bring on a false witness and try to use a case, any case, but one as high profile as this. And your whole argument is that's exactly what they did. What they did, you know, uh, they did find Diamond Eugene. Uh, after Zimmerman was exonerated, Ben Crump got with some of Trayvon's friends and they were demanding from Diamond Eugene to please come forward and make an anti-Zimmerman statement because she was on the phone with him before he was shot. And she actually recorded a phone call with Trump, with Crump. And in the phone call, she repeats whatever. She's only 16. So whatever Crump says, she repeats. So Crump says, was he, uh, you know, happy that day before this incident? Yeah, he was happy. And so he kind of gets her to repeat whatever he says. She's only 16 and she doesn't want anything to do with it. And so Crump goes to a press conference and he has a digital recording of his phone call with Diamond Eugene. And he says, she's a minor. She's 16. Everyone has to respect her privacy. Don't talk to her. And he plays a couple of clips. And she doesn't really even say anything. And he says, now we got all the evidence. Arrest George Zimmerman. So based on that, this special prosecutor, the Florida uh, district attorney appoints a special prosecutor. And in the meantime, Diamond Eugene meets Trayvon's mother, Sabrina Fulton, in person. She meets uh, Ben Crump. Sabrina Fulton, Trayvon's mother, goes and meets, goes to the house and talks to Diamond Eugene's mother on Flamingo Drive. Two weeks later, the special prosecutor goes with Sabrina Fulton and Crump and they drive to Diamond Eugene's house and they're told she's at a different address. So they go to this other address where this girl named Francine Serve, who works for Trayvon's mother, is located. And Rachel Gentel comes out 
and Trayvon's mother was not in on the switch. She knew that the real girl was Diamond Eugene, but so Trayvon's mother calls Diamond Eugene. We've got the phone records and says, I thought you were Trayvon's girlfriend. Who's this? And Crump tells Sabrina, no, no, we're going to use this girl. So they take this girl who's two years older, who's 18, not 16, like Crump told the media, 200 pounds heavier than Trayvon, two years older. And they take her and they interview her in this. And I got the recording of the transcript. And she says things that are completely opposite of what the girl told Crump on the phone. At the end of the interview, Rachel Gentel, who's in a, in a class for, uh, we don't use the word anymore, retarded kids, but she's in a special ed class and she never goes to school even. At the end of the interview, the prosecutor says, okay, thank you for talking to us. And Rachel says, I ain't know about it. He says, what? She says, I feel guilty. The prosecutor says, what do you mean feel guilty? She says, I feel guilty. He said, why are you guilty? I feel so guilty. She says it six times. Prosecutor says, why do you feel guilty? She says, I know about it. He said, what? She said, I know about it. She's confessing that she's made it all up. And the prosecutor kind of doesn't understand it. And they go and they use her statements in this interview to arrest Zimmerman. Even though the eyewitness, Jonathan Good told the prosecutors, told the Sanford police that it was Trayvon on top of Zimmerman beating the hell out of him, MMA style. They use Rachel Gentel's things that she heard over the phone, and she's a fake witness. So they use, they arrest Zimmerman, they have this trial. Rachel Gentel shows up. She doesn't make any sense. Unfortunately, the defense attorneys for Zimmerman did not pick up on everything I picked up on, that she was a total fake and wasn't the real eyewitness. Uh, Trayvon's mother had a letter from Diamond Eugene where she told what happened, and she signed it Diamond Eugene in her own handwriting. I, got, I took that handwriting and got it analyzed by a handwriting expert who said that was not Rachel Gentel who wrote that. Zimmerman's attorneys in the court said, why did you use the name Diamond Eugene? She said, oh, it's my nickname. It couldn't be more ridiculous. So the whole thing was a fraud. It was a hoax. Obama used it to get reelected to inflame the black community. Black Lives Matter was founded on the Trayvon hoax, biggest judicial hoax in our history. But then it led to the next host. Hands up, don't shoot was another hoax, racial hoax. Freddie Gray, racial hoax, all the way up through George Floyd. George Floyd, I think there's enough credible evidence to show that he did not die because uh, Derek Chauvin put his knee on his neck and shoulder to immobilize him waiting for the uh, ambulance. He died of a drug overdose. He had three times the amount of fentanyl in his system to kill a person and was on a number of drugs. So that led to, you know, whatever, $2 billion <coughs> in property damage and all these, uh, this cultural revolution of anti-racism all started with the Trayvon hoax. What was craziest about all of that was that written statement by Rachel Jontel where she says, I'm Diamond Eugene. And it's written in cursive, and then she says on the stand that she can't read cursive. Yeah, they asked, look, I don't think she could read it all, Rachel. Well, Gentile, she had a fourth grade read reading and writing level, right? Yeah, fourth grade reading, if that. I mean, she didn't go to school. She was in these special ed classes. She was born premature, Rachel Gentel. She hardly went to class, and uh, they took advantage of her. You know, she was a special ed girl. When I grew up, we would say that she was retarded. But that's the word they use for it. And uh, she was taken advantage of by all of these people. And she 
also was a victim of these uh, of this whole hoax. How does the defense not find that, but you can? When you have access to the exact same records, you're looking well, through the phone calls between yeah, I mean, Trayvon and her. Look, I went and I got the, uh, Trayvon had uh, 3,500 uh, text messages and about 700 pages of extraction of his cell phone, 1,500 contacts, 3,000 photos, all his text messages with Diamond Eugene, uh, you know, I had them. Uh, so um, I was able to, you know, it took me a couple of months to go through these and identify each person and track them down. Now I asked, and then I found, for instance, text messages from uh, Trayvon where he says to Diamond Eugene in text, he says, send me a pic. And she, she texts him a picture. And there's the picture. It's not Rachel Gentile. It's a different girl. So I asked Trayvon's, I asked uh, Zimmerman's attorneys, um, Mark O'Mara and Don West. I said, you know, how come you didn't see this? You know, and he said, well, what happened was on the one hand, they knew they could get Zimmerman off for self-defense. They knew that. On the other hand, they had to spend several months in court. Two-thirds of their time in court before the trial was motions against the prosecution for withholding evidence. And they only got the text messages like two months before trial. And they just felt they didn't have the time to research all these people and things. They just didn't do it because they knew they had a solid uh, exoneration on self-defense. So that's why they told me they didn't go into it. But anyone could have gone into the state of Florida and gotten these text messages and seen that obviously Rachel Gentile was not Diamond Eugene. And I'm, I'm sure that Ben Crump and uh, the Martin family were relieved when Zimmerman was found not guilty. Because had he gone to jail, somebody would have looked at those text messages and said, wait a minute, that's not, the key witness is not Diamond Eugene. And the whole thing would have blown up. I believe that Zimmerman did bring a suit against, I don't know if it was the prosecution or the state, alleging this, right? And wasn't that just thrown out by a judge? Uh, say that again? Didn't uh, George Zimmerman bring a countersuit forward claiming all of this, alleging that the prosecution... Yeah, when my film and book came witness? out, uh, it was right before COVID, and Zimmerman filed a lawsuit for false prosecution and uh, civil claims against the Martin family, against Diamond Eugene, against Rachel Gentile in federal court. Now, uh, then COVID hit and it got held up for like almost two years. And then it eventually got dismissed on statute limitations and technicalities. But the Zimmerman family, Crump was sued. They were all sued. They were very worried. I mean, they came to court with 15 lawyers trying to get the thing thrown out. That's how worried they were because their entire narrative depended on uh, keeping up this fake story in the news as real when it was fake. But if it was fake, that would be a huge story. That, I mean, that would be a complete rebuttal against the entire argument the case was based on, that this was a racially motivated hate crime where this George Zimmerman character shot this unarmed blackhead who was just walking home with Skittles and a soda. Well, what happened is the media was forced to cover it. When Zimmerman filed his lawsuit, that forced the media to cover it. All the media, CBS, NBC, you name it, everybody covered it. But what they did is they went to Ben Crump, who said, Zimmerman is just trying to get attention. This whole thing is completely made up. He's, it's terrible. He killed their son, and now he's harassing the parents with this frivolous lawsuit. And that would be the coverage. 
They wouldn't, they wouldn't look into it any further. So, uh, you know, you'd think with all the publicity, that would be the end of Black Lives Matter. There would be no hands up, don't shoot. There'd be no George Floyd because people would see that this was a race hoax. But they were able to overcome the publicity by simply asking Crump what he thought and, uh, you know, saying, well, George Zimmerman is bad. Uh, I found that people were very emotionally attached to the narrative that a smallish 12-year-old black child was getting candy for his brother and was shot down in cold blood by a crazy white man. That's the narrative that they put out there that people are so emotionally attached to, they don't want to give it up. I've actually sent my film and book to different writers who write about the case to this day. I, people write and say, oh, my whole life was changed by the Trayvon Martin case and I got involved in social justice. And I would send them an email and say, hey, look at my film. Everything you thought about this case was fake. You got played. And they never respond. They're just so emotionally attached to the narrative. They don't want to give it up. How did that case come on your radar? Or why did you choose to investigate that? It didn't seem like it was up to snuff. Well, at the time, I was working on my film about Obama and uh, in, back in 2012, 13. So I remember the thing that stood out to me, I remember that when uh, Ben Crump played the recording of Diamond Eugene at this press conference, uh, I'm also a musician. I have a band and uh, I'm very attuned to, to sound and pitch. And if I hear something, it, it means a lot to me, and I can understand something according to how it sounds. And so I remember at the time, the girl, the voice of the girl that Crump played at this press conference sounded nothing like the girl who showed up in court, Rachel Gentel. I remember at that time thinking, that's not the same girl. What's wrong here? Something's wrong. But I didn't look into it because I was working on my Obama stuff. I just thought it was very strange and something wasn't right. So it was a couple years later, I was between films and I started thinking about that case. And I said, you know what? I'm going to look into that. And if I find that, I'm going to listen to those recordings again. And I listened to them and I said, you know what? That's not the same girl. Somebody substituted this other girl. Why did they do it? I'm going to try to find out. If I can find out, I'll make a film and a book about it. The documentary is interesting in that you are doing this investigative work. You're digging through phone records. You're traveling to these places. You're speaking to people that were directly involved in the case. And it's, you also have this interesting production value where it's almost cartoonish. It almost feels like it's kind of a joke. Like there's some comedic relief in there as well. Was that deliberate, that decision? Or was well, that a budgetary? Look at all my films. Uh, well, look, uh, it's an hour and a half film. I think it is cinematic. I think it is entertaining. There's a lot of uh, emotional ups and downs. Uh, we got to learn about the Haitian community. There's something called Little Haiti in, um, in Miami. Uh, Diamond Eugene was part of the Haitian community. So is uh, Rachel Gentel. Identity switching is a big part of what Haitians do. There's a lot of identity theft and identity changes. People joining different families in their community being raised by the different family, credit card fraud. So it was certainly something interesting to look into the, go to Little Haiti and find out more about the Haitian community. And um, it, it is a little absurd when you think about what they did. Uh, well, you're in Little Haiti and you're looking for a voodoo priestess. 
I mean, that's pretty comical. I go to Haiti. I go to little Haiti and they have uh, voodoo priests and priestess who can kind of give you advice. Uh, and so I went to see a voodoo priest and he, it's amazing what he told me uh, about Diamond Eugene. This is before I found her. He told me she doesn't have a good heart. She's a bad person. I said, whoa. So there's a lot of fun things in the movie. Look, just Trayvon's text messages with all his friends. He was dealing guns. He was dealing drugs. Uh, but you do learn a lot about Trayvon. Uh, the, the film is sympathetic toward Trayvon. It, he was not really a thug or evil person. Uh, he was a kid whose life was kind of messed up by his father. His father left his stepmother. He lived with his stepmother, uh, Alicia Stanley, since he was three years old. And his father left her. And he had to go back and live with Sabrina Fulton, who he didn't really like or hadn't spent much time with. And I think he was acting out. He's trying to get Sabrina to kick him out of the house so that he could go back and live with, uh, with uh, Alicia, with his Alicia Stanley. In fact, we found out from George Zimmerman in the film that as Trayvon, after he was shot, he told George Zimmerman, I think he knew he was in bad shape. He told George, tell Mama Alicia, I'm sorry. Mama Alicia was his nickname for Alicia Stanley, his his mother. So I'm sure Alicia Stanley had told him to stay out of trouble and not get hurt, that kind of thing. So it is a tragic uh, film. It's just, some things are funny, some things are tragic, but I think it's a great movie and book uh, that people w- people do enjoy. Did you have a team helping you produce that, or are you a a one man operation? Do you have a skeleton crew? I have a small crew. I had a cameraman, of course, we went around. I have a, an assistant editor, an assistant researcher, assistant with graphics. But, uh, you know, pretty much it's uh, you see me in the film because I, I pretty much did the whole thing, mostly on my own. But I do have a staff that gets some things done. It helps out. For someone listening to this and who is either not familiar with your work or maybe just has a cursory knowledge and they're listening and thinking, this guy's a crackpot. Trayvon, that was a legitimate case of racism. Michelle Obama is not some radical. The Obamas aren't race baiting. The media, there's no conspiracy in the media to cope for these people. What do you say to them? Well, my films are based on research. You can uh, watch the movies, read the books, and you'll see the facts for yourself. Uh, The media just tends to repeat whatever they're told or whatever Barack or Michelle tells them, they just repeat it. It's not very in-depth. These are in-depth investigations. You get the real facts, the real story. I go to Chicago, I go to Florida, I go to Hawaii, and I talk to people that know these subjects. And uh, I think anyone that watches my work uh, or reads the books will appreciate uh, the in-depth amount of research I did. And they'll be quite shocked at how, uh, how little the media really does to, to research these issues. I was definitely shocked. I think the past few years with the coverage of COVID, with the coverage of the Twitter files, of a lot of things, you start to realize that the media is definitely a business. The news isn't in the business of providing people information. It's in cultivating a story, whether you agree with the story or not. And I think that has made people a little more skeptical and willing to at least hear different opinions and different ideas. Yeah, it's quite a challenge. Look, I'll give you one example. Uh, When I came out with my film, The Trayvon Hoax, I talked to the Miami Herald reporters, seasoned reporters that have been there 20, 30 years. And I told them the story. I said, I'm going to send you the book and the film. I want you to watch this because the Miami Herald actually covered the Trayvon Martin case and the Zimmerman trial because all those characters were from Miami. They did a pretty good job in 2012 and 13 covering the Trayvon Martin 
trial of George Zimmerman. So I'm talking to the reporters and I'm providing this information. I said, I'm coming out with this film and book. You got to cover this. Uh, Sabrina Fulton, his mother, Trayvon's mother, was running for county commissioner. She's running for election. She knew that she was using a fake witness. I've got all the evidence. Uh, look at this film. They didn't want any part of covering it. They were scared to death. They wouldn't cover it. I couldn't believe it. I kept talking to them. I said, why won't you cover this? Uh, a year later, or eight months later, when Zimmerman filed his lawsuit against the Martin family, against Crump, against the state of Florida, against Rachel Gentile and Jaime Eugene, and it was big news, all of a sudden the Miami Herald is calling me to cover it. I said, where, where were you guys eight months ago? Why wouldn't you cover it? They don't have any answer. They just follow whatever is in the news they'll cover, but they won't cover anything uh, that, that goes against the narrative. Because the narrative is, as I said, not a six foot three, 17 year old uh, kid was fighting on the phone with his girlfriend, Diamond Eugene, and smoking pot and then attacked Zimmerman. No, the narrative is a 12 year old child was buying candy for his little brother and was gunned down in cold blood. And they're, they're afraid, everyone is afraid to go against that narrative. And it's worth noting that if you were just out here making things up, theoretically, or if you were just kind of fudging the data and coming out with lies, you would assume that people would be trying to sue you and would be trying to take down this and countering it with better information. And it doesn't seem like that's happening. Never heard from anybody's lawyer about anything. Uh, we only hear them making false statements to the media to counteract my material, like Barack Obama.com did. They attacked me. Ben Crump, as I said, came out and said, you know, George is, you know, trying to get attention. You know, they, they just, they use the media to accomplish what they need to do, which is to diminish and minimize the truth uh, because the truth is not on their side. Did you have a background in investigative journalism prior to doing your, you know, documentaries on music? What did your life look uh, no, like? No, my, uh, my background is in uh, studied uh, Middle East history, uh, economics, and politics is my, my background. So that story on Obama, that was your real first introduction to doing some investigative journalism on this level? Well, no, I mean, I looked in, look, I made several films on Bob Dylan. and uh, But from a political you know, perspective. Did, what's that? From a political sp perspective, Obama was kind of your your entryway. No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, look, uh, Bob Dylan is a uh, pop culture worldwide phenomenon. I did a lot of research and talked to a lot of people and came up with very interesting different stories about his early life, his pursuit of music, his use of drugs, his uh, what he means to the culture and why. A lot of investigation took place for the films on Bob Dylan. Uh, I made the film about uh, Middle East history, uh, about the Islamic Jewish conflict, about the Iranian nuclear program tremendous amount of research and information went into those. All my films, if you stop watching for about 30 seconds, you miss something interesting. Uh, and then the Obama film was, uh, you know, about my uh, 10th film I had made and just continued my style where I go and I research the subject, get to know the subject, go and talk to people and produce a film with what is uh, a real story. What is a real story? Real story, Barack Obama is, for example, you know, he was raised in Hawaii uh, by his white grandparents. He went to Indonesia. He came back and was raised 
from age nine to 18 by a Russian agent who I think was his real biological father. And he was radicalized by him so much so that when he, when Obama showed up at Occidental College, having gone to an exclusive Punahou High School in Hawaii, Obama said he went to Occidental to study with Marxist professors. Now, why would you do that at 18 years old if you didn't have some kind of uh, radicalization in Marxism? He went there to study with Marxist professors. So, uh, you know, that's Obama's story. He had in college his best friends where he lived with Pakistanis. Uh, he went to Pakistan for six months on a junior year, uh, six months abroad. Uh, Obama at Columbia University uh, didn't, you know, didn't really know anybody except for Bill Ayers. So there's a whole life history uh, that I think I've documented of Obama throughout his life and in Chicago that shows he was a political radical. And uh, when he ran for president on a mainstream platform, saying things like, I'm going to obey the Constitution, marriage is between man and a woman and God, uh, he was faking it. And as soon as he got elected, he threw the voters under the bus and he pursued a radical agenda that nobody voted for. And I think when you look at Obama's policies and you watch, for example, Dreams from My Real Father, you say, oh, now I understand what this guy's been up to all this time and why. So I think uh, all the films shed a tremendous amount of light on uh, real background stories of people that there's a public narrative, such as we talked about for George Zimmerman, you know, a racist white guy that shot down an innocent black child carrying candy is completely made up. Every word I just said is made up, and uh, people, I think, appreciate learning the truth. Is your concern that should Michelle win, it's going to be a continuation of those more radical policies? I think so. Michelle's never really had an original idea. If you look at her Twitter account, she just mimics whatever Democrats are saying. Uh, when she introduced Joe Biden in the 2020 Democrat convention, she talked about the Black Lives Matter riots. She said the riots were mostly peaceful and the demonstrators were attacked with rubber bullets. So she just kind of mimics whatever the far left is saying or doing. So I, I certainly would be concerned that she would continue the from the current third Obama term of Joe Biden uh, to the fourth Obama term, maybe the fifth, and implement these radical policies that no one is really aware of uh, for the most part. Well, Joel, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on and chat with me. Okay. It's been a good discussion. Thank you. Yeah. If people want to check out your work, see your videos, where can they go? Yeah. Please start by going to my Twitter. I'm pretty active there. Joel S. S. as in Sam. Joel S. Gilbert. Uh, MichelleObama24.com. MichelleObama24.com. You can link up to where you can watch it on Salem Now, live stream on Salem Now, Vimeo, or Amazon Prime Video. The DVD and book version are also uh, going to be on Amazon. And then the TrayvonHoax.com, also on Amazon, the book or the film, or go to the TrayvonHoax.com. And uh, Dreams from My Real Father, Obama's RealFather.com. You can learn all about it. Its DVD is on, uh, on Amazon. Funnily enough, the video was on Amazon for years and then it got kicked off for no reason. Same thing with the Trayvon hoax movie. They kicked it off of Amazon and Vimeo, even though it did, it was doing very well. Uh, so yeah, check out all my films. You can link up on my Twitter account, especially it links to all my films, uh, joelsgilbert.com. And I think you'll really enjoy 
learning about these subjects, Middle East history, even Bob Dylan and Paul McCartney. I made some really uh, great movies, I think. Yeah, I can't recommend it enough for people to just check it out and form their own opinions after watching it. Okay, well, thanks for having me today. Thanks.